I wanted to begin this morning by just sharing with you a little story here. There, as was the normal routine on a Sunday morning, a wife got up, she got ready for church. She got up and she got her breakfast, she showered, she got dressed, she put her makeup on, and she was ready to go. It was just as she had, you know, she was just about ready to leave when she noticed that her husband was still in his robe and pajamas. I don't know if that's the way it is in your house or not, but that's sometimes that's the way it is, I guess. So she asked him, what he, what are you doing? He says, I'm not going to church. He said to her, what do you mean you're not going to church? Give me, give me one good reason why you're not going to go to church today. So the husband responds, he says, I'll give you three good reasons why I'm not going to church. Reason number one is the church feels cold. Reason number two, no one likes me there. And reason number three, <clears throat> I just don't like it there. Is that, is that good enough for you? You know, she said when he concluded. And she said, well, what if I give you three good reasons why you should go to church? The wife responded. Reason number one. The church is actually quite warm and friendly. Reason number two, there are a few people there who do like you, believe it or not. And reason number three is you're the pastor, sweetheart, (laughs) so you better get dressed and get to church. My wife has had to give me around a few times. You know, we don't, we don't gather as the church for our own sakes, folks. We come together as the church to rest up, to recharge, to get nourished so that we can go into a, a world that is definitely in need of Christ. And we need to be the church. You don't just go to church. You need to be the church. The church, not this you are marvelous club of mediocrities. In other words, church isn't something you go to and hear. Church is something that you are out there. We call that, instead of intimacy, outmacy. I made that word up. <laughs> the, the, the fellowship of the early church absolutely centered around the dinner table. That's what it did. Believers shared the Lord's Supper there. It was a place of great intimacy. But see, the the measure of greatness, the the absolute measure of, of the greatness of their community was not the experience of intimacy. That, that wasn't the greatness of their community. It wasn't that, that gathering around the Lord's table. It was the extent to their, to which their intimacy with God and with one another overflowed to the blessing of those who hadn't quite yet made it to the table yet. Those people who are out there in the world who, who do not know Jesus Christ yet. That is the most important thing. It wasn't the intimacy that they gathered around the Lord's table. It was the extent to which their intimacy with God and with one another overflowed 
to their blessing of those not yet around the table. And I think we need to look at it that way. You know, we, this is our last series here on, on the church, what makes a great church great. And for several weeks, for actually this is our fifth week, we've explored the book of First Thessalonians together. And as I said in the very beginning of this series, uh, five weeks ago, every local church is made up of sinners saved by God's grace. Amen? We are. We're saved by God's grace. So there's no such thing as a perfect church. There just isn't. Because if you're a sinner and you join that church, then it's not perfect anymore, is it? But I do think that some churches come closer than others. And I believe that the church at Thessalonica was in that category. See, all throughout his, his first letter to the Thessalonians, Paul praises the church for their faithful work, for their loving deeds, and for their commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. He praises them for that. And so you might say the church at Thessalonica was a great church. What makes a great church great? Well, I think some of those things that I just shared with you make a great church great. And in reading Paul's letter, what we do is we discover several characteristics of a great church. And we're going to talk about all the characteristics we've learned at the end of this message. But now as Paul brings this letter to a close in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he offers some final thoughts that describe a few more characteristics of a great church. And I'm going to read it from the monitor here because my NIV doesn't match up with the computer's NIV a lot of times because I have the 1984 model, which is old, and they have a newer one that, that's on all those displays. There. So I'm going to read it from the monitor here. It says, it says, beginning with verse 12, it says, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you, Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good, reject what is evil, reject every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. We're doing it wrong, folks. Where's our holy kisses? We, we're, not, we're not doing holy kisses, are we? Well, COVID kind of put a quench to that, didn't it? I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And for those of you who are visiting, we, we actually don't greet one another with a holy kiss, but we do, do the holy hugs and we do the holy handshakes. And some of us actually do some of the holy kisses. Some of us do, but anyway. You know, 
Paul packs quite a bit of information in that final paragraph there, or this final couple paragraphs. You know, it, it, it almost wears you out just hopping from verb to verb. You know, no less than 17 verbs in that 10 short verses there. In fact, this passage is packed with at least 12 different commands or instructions, characteristics if you want to call them that, each one representing another characteristic of the great church, what a great church is to be. So rather than hitting the highlights and grouping them in a broader category, what I'm going to do today is I want to touch briefly on all 12 of these instructions. Each of them have been arranged in one single word. And I'm going to start with the first one, and that is respect. The first characteristic is respect. Paul starts by reminding the church at Thessalonica there. He says in verses 12 and 13, notice what he says there. And I'm going to read it from my version this time. It says, now we ask you, brothers, respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. It says, hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. You know, here at Cornerstone, we are blessed to have godly spiritual leaders as elders, you know, past and present. Well, there's a lot of, there's, you know, there's a lot of past elders here as well. And we do appreciate their work. You know, they pray continually for our guidance in leading this church. And those leaders are also teachers of God's word. And so we are blessed to have folks who lead in worship. You guys did a great job with, with your, with your worship leader gone today. You did a great job. We're, we're blessed with that. Those that lead in activities. We have lots of people who lead in activities. Those who work in the nursery. God bless you. Because that, that is a hard job. Those that clean the church, those that take care of the lawn, those that take care of the parking lot, you'll notice that we have posts out there. We're going to have lights pretty soon. You know, and all those who serve in many of other ways. I mean, we have a lot of people who serve the Lord here at, at Cornerstone. Our leaders are those who serve and they deserve our love and respect. And so I want to encourage you to express your appreciation for them. Uh, maybe even tell them, how you have been blessed by their leadership or their teachings and let them know that you support them. It's so important to support one another in the ministry. Every single ministry is important. Not just the preaching ministry, not just the worship ministry. Every ministry is important. And we should show that respect. The second characteristic that Paul brings out today is this. It's a reprimand. The next instruction Paul gives is to reprimand those who are not living right. In the NIV, he says, warn those who are idle. In the New American Standard Bible, in verse 14, he says this. He says, admonish the unruly. That's what he tells us to do. The word translated unruly here can have a variety of meanings, including idle, laziness, divisive, irresponsible. You know, what, whatever Paul is meaning here, or whatever he has in mind, it's clear that he wants the Christians in Thessalonica to correct each other whenever one of us strays away, 
Whenever one of us is not living in the right way, we need to admonish one another. Sometimes Christians need to to be reminded and we need to have each other's backs. We need to be helping each other. You know, a lot of times we can lose our focus. How many of you can lose your focus easy? I know I can. So we need our brothers and sisters in Christ to lovingly remind us, lovingly reprimand us, to remind us of who we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to live. Because we need each other. The world isn't going to do that. The world isn't going to lovingly reprimand you. The world's going to be a lot different. And what's really sad is when the world, like Francis Chan said this a a, a little while ago in his book called Letters to the Church, he says it's really sad when the world outloves the church. And we need to be really careful that we never allow that to happen, especially here at Cornerstone. We need to lovingly guide, lovingly reprimand if we need to. The third characteristic, he says, is to reassure Because next, Paul tells us to reassure the discouraged, or as the NIV puts it, the NIV puts it this way. In verse 14 there, he says, or encourage the disheartened. Encourage the disheartened. That's what he tells us. You know, how many of you know who Jackie Robinson is? Okay, I knew a lot of you would. He was the first black person to play Major League Baseball. Breaking baseball's color barrier, he faced a lot, guys. I mean, absolutely a lot. People in the crowds just yelling at him all the time. You know, players would stomp on his feet and kick him. You know, while playing one day in his home stadium in Brooklyn, he made an error, and the fans began to ridicule him right from the stands. And he stood on second base, humiliated, while the fans just made fun and laughed and and yelled at him. But something happened that day. The shortstop, his name was Pee Wee Reese, came over and he stood next to Jackie Robinson. And he put his arm around Jackie and he faced the crowd with his arm around Jackie Robinson. And all of a sudden, the whole stadium just grew quiet. And Robinson said later that that arm around him, around his shoulders, literally saved his career. We all get discouraged, don't we? We all get disheartened at times. We need someone to stand beside us to put their arm just around our shoulder. And that's why God gave us the church. That's why God gave us the church. That's why God gave us each other. So that we could be that encouragement to one another. And so I encourage you as brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage one another. And all, all the more as, as that the day approaches, we need to encourage one another and lift one another up. The fourth characteristic is the word relieve. On a related note, as Paul continues, 
he tells us that great churches relieve one another's burdens. Notice what he says there in, in verse 14. He says, help the weak. Help the weak. You know, several times throughout the New Testament, believers are told to help the weak. You know, this can this could mean physically, spiritually, financially, whatever it is. Jesus' mission on the earth was to save souls. But in the process, what he did was he helped those who were in need. That's what Jesus did. He fed the hungry. He healed the sick. He listened and he cared. So what I say is let's follow in Jesus' footsteps. When you follow in Jesus' footsteps, you can't go wrong. Relieve each other's burdens. Help one another out. Especially those who can't help themselves. Then the fifth characteristic that he shares with us is this. It's relax. How many of you like to relax? <laughs> yeah, I would say that a lot of us like to relax. And, and while Paul's at, he's, Paul tells us to relax. He says in verse 14, be patient with everyone. Church families, like natural families, have their share of conflict. All churches do. You know, people may rub you the wrong way or they might get on your nerves. You know, I'm reminded of a man who was walking through a supermarket with a screaming baby in a, in a shopping cart. You ever been there and done that? <laughs> I have. A woman nearby noticed that time and time again, this man would calmly say, keep calm, Ethan, keep calm. And finally, the admiration for this man's patience as the child continued to scream, the woman just couldn't stand anymore. She walked up to the man and she said, Sir, I must commend you for your patience with baby Ethan. To which the father replied, Actually, my name is Logan. Or uh, his name is Logan, my name is Ethan. So, <laughs> You know, the Greek word used for patience is a very descriptive one. A very descriptive one. It figuratively means taking a long time to boil. How many of you take a long time to boil? Think about a pot of boiling water. You know, the water boils very quickly when the flame is high. And we know that. It boils and may not even get to a boil if it's very slow of a flame. If the flame is very low. I think that patience keeps the burner low. It just keeps that flame low enough that we don't fly off the handle. You know, it waits, it listens, it's slow to boil. So the next time someone tries your patience, just relax and keep the burner low. You getting this? Just relax and keep the burner low. The sixth characteristic that Paul brings out, and we're halfway through from this one, it's repay. Paul's next instruction says, don't repay evil for evil. He writes in verse 15, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strives to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. You know, the desire, the desire to get even seems to be a part of the human nature. You know, it's like the story of a mother who heard her seven-year-old son screaming. 
you know, she runs into the next room to see what is wrong and discovers that her one-year-old daughter is pulling her brother's hair. You, you ever have that? The mother gets the baby's hand and, 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 and unclenches it and says, Honey, I'm sorry. You know, your sister doesn't know what it feels like to have her hair pulled. So the mother goes back into the kitchen and all of a sudden she hears her daughter screaming and she runs back into the room and she says, what happened? And the boy answered, she knows what it feels like now. (laughs) Isn't that the truth? You know, as Christians, we can't succumb to the desire to get even. Even though every fiber of our being wants to do that, we cannot do that. The problem with an eye for an eye is that everybody ends up blind. Isn't that the truth? That's what the law said. But grace doesn't say that. It says, do not return evil for evil. Rather, we ought to repay evil with good. That's what we need to do. Be kind, even when others aren't kind to you. Is that hard to do? Because our natural reaction as human nature is to want to lash out. But be kind when, even when people aren't kind to you. Seven. The seventh characteristic that I want to point out is rejoice. You know, when we do what Paul's next instructions come, I, I think that it, it can make it a lot easier for us. Paul says rejoice. Paul says, be joyful always in verse 16 there. You know, God wants you to be happy. He truly does. Joy is meant to be the hallmark of the Christian life. You know, it is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's part of that fruit of the Holy Spirit. And it is a gift from God. Joy is. All too often, though, what happens is, We allow or we let our circumstances dictate our happiness. And that's really hard not to do. It really is. You know, statistically, I don't know where they come up with these statistics, but I'm going to say it anyway. Statistically, the average adult laughs about 15 times a day. Now, you've done that about three times in here today that I've heard. So you got to feel, okay, there's four. So you got a few more. There's five. Okay. <laughs> so maybe you, maybe you guys are going to break that statistic there. But listen to this. While the average four year old lasts about 400 times a day, what is that telling you? That tells me that when God makes us, I think he makes us a little bit happier than what we are. You know, the hearts of little children are filled with joy. But as we get older, we we let the worries and the concerns of life choke the joy right out of us. When the bills are piling up, or the kids are acting crazy, or the car breaks down, sometimes that's really difficult to experience joy, isn't it? Man, I can't believe that. So, if we're going to rejoice always, as Paul says, then what we've got to do, guys, is we've got to look beyond the circumstances. My preacher, my home preacher when I was growing up, 
was Chuck Dowdy down in Winchester there. And whenever he would hear the phrase, under the circumstances, he would always say, what are you doing under the circumstances? You have a, you have a, 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 a savior who, who sets you above the circumstances. Don't allow the circumstances to control who you are. True joy comes from an ever growing awareness of God's presence and experiencing his love and grace even in the midst of our struggles and our stress. Number eight, the eighth characteristic that I want to talk about is to reconnect. One of the ways of doing that as far as the rejoicing is to reconnect with God regularly on a daily basis. Paul instructs, here's what he says, and it's one of my favorite verses. He says, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. This is verses 17 and 18 of that passage. Never stop praying. I'm reminded of a little boy who was kneeling by his bed with his mom, and he was saying his bedtime prayers. About halfway through, he began to shout at the top of his lungs, Dear God, I've been real good this year, so please let me get a new bicycle for my birthday. And his mom said, Son, God's not deaf. You don't need to yell. And he said, God's not deaf, but Grandma is, and she's in the next room, and I'm hoping she hears this prayer. (laughs) That is for sure. Now, there's a, there's a little boy who knew how to get his prayers heard, that's for sure. Dear God, I want a new God. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Mature Christians know that, however, that prayer is, is about much more than getting things from God. It's, it's much more than that. You know, if that's all it was all about, you know, Paul would have said, Pray whenever you need something. But he didn't say that. Rather, Paul said, pray without ceasing. Pray with unending prayer. Never stop praying. Pray without ceasing. Prayer is, at its heart, about deepening our relationship with God who made us. And that's why Paul says to give thanks in all circumstances. When our most passionate prayer is not for the things of God or a favor from God, but God himself. God himself. We cross that threshold into a, a what I think is a very pleasing type of prayer for God. And that's the kind of prayer God wants to answer when it's about him, when we pray about him and not about everything that we want but just because of who God is, can we do that? Just just thank him for who he is. Number nine, the ninth characteristic is repress. Paul instructs, he says, do not repress the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 19 in your chapter, in, in, in chapter five there. Paul says, do not quench the spirit. Do not put the spirit's fire out. That's what he tells us. How many of you know of the, the, the Christian music group called Plum? Anybody hear of Plum? 
Okay, so you know who it is. They have a song called God-Shaped Hole. And they are 100% right. There is a God-shaped hole in our lives, and our hearts. And when we pray, God fills the inner vacuum with his Holy Spirit. The words to their song says, there's a God-shaped hole in all of us, and the restless soul is searching. Only he can fill. That's what it says. Unfortunately, we can sometimes be guilty of quenching or repressing the Holy Spirit's influence in our lives. And that's unfortunate. You know, when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, he helps us to understand spiritual truths. He empowers us with special gifts and talents and abilities, and he produces the fruit of the Spirit. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Well, it's love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. He produces those things in our lives. That's what he does. But when we ignore what the Holy Spirit is trying to teach us or fail to use the gifts that he has given us or squash the fruit that he has produced, what we do is we we repress the Holy Spirit and prevent him from doing what God wants done in our lives. Oh, we don't want to be like those holy rollers. No way. I don't want to do that. I don't want to show too much of the Spirit in my life. Is that right? Absolutely not. The Holy Spirit comes at the occasion of our baptism, and He is there to be our comforter, our guide. But He's also there to teach us things and help us to learn and to and to, to, to be excited about who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. So rather than repress the Holy Spirit, why don't you release the Holy Spirit into your life? You know, let's be sensitive to the Spirit's prompting and soften our hearts so that the Spirit is free to work within us. Let's do that. Number 10, ridicule. It's the 10th characteristic. In this Paul offers a warning. He offers a warning against ridiculing God's word. He says in verse 20 there, he says, do not treat prophecies with contempt. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. He's warning us not to ridicule God's word. You know, believers in Paul's day didn't have the Bible like we have the Bible. Much of the New Testament had not been written yet. And it wouldn't be collected into a single volume for probably another 300 years. So instead, what he had was he had prophets on whom God spoke through, revealing his word in bits rather than in a a whole book like we have. So by telling the Thessalonians not to ridicule the prophecies, he's reminding them to take God's word seriously. That's what he's telling us there. Whenever we read the Bible or listen to a sermon that comes from God's word, God speaks to us personally through his word. And if we really listen to what he's saying and take it to heart, you know what it can do for you? It can literally transform our lives. That's what it can do for us. 
The 11th characteristic is called review. Going right along with that, what we were just talking about, Paul then says to review what you hear. He says, test everything. Hold on to the good. Test everything. In other words, be discerning. Don't accept something as true just because the person who said it stands behind a pulpit or their face is on a book. Check their teachings against the Bible. This is truth right here, folks. This is how we know. Not by what I say or what someone who, who has written a book, by what this book says. We test the truth and we hold on to it. If they say it doesn't line up with the scripture, then you toss it out. But if it does, then you hold on to it. And the last one that I want to share with you this morning is this. Number 12 is reject. Reject is the 12th characteristic. Paul cautions the Thessalonians to reject evil in every form. He writes, avoid or reject every kind of evil in verse 22 there. The word translated reject here means to shrink from or keep aloof from. In other words, we shouldn't be hanging out around evil influences. You know, several decades ago, around the turn of the century, musicians noticed that all the errand boys in a certain part of London all whistled out of tune. I don't know how you do that, but they did. As they rode their, around the, the city on their bicycles making deliveries, they, they whistled out of tune. After a while, they discovered that the reason for the poor pitch was that the bells at Westminster were slightly out of tune. The errand boys had unconsciously copied that pitch. Well, folks, let me tell you something. In the very same way, we tend to copy the people whom we associate with. Absolutely. You know, our worldview is constantly being shaped by the books we read, by the music we listen to, by the TV shows that we watch, often even without noticing it. So if we want to keep joyfully walking with the Lord then we need to be careful about the company that we keep and the influences that we allow in our lives. That I'm telling you, that is really important, especially with our children. So in closing this morning, these 12 instructions, these 12 characteristics comprise Paul's final words and advice and encouragement to the church and the church at Thessalonica. There are also 12 characteristics of a great church. And I believe that, that Thessalonica was a great church. So along with the 12 characteristics that you learned about in chapter 5 here, let's go back here to chapter 4, where Paul praises the church for, for avoiding lust, you know, ad- adopting and advancing love and applauding labor. And then in chapters 2 and 3, we learn that Paul describes them as a scriptural church and a suffering church and a strong church. And then back in chapter 1, five weeks ago, Paul praises them for being an exciting and an energetic church, a chosen or an elect church, an evangelistic church, and an expectant church. 22, I counted, 22 characteristics 
over the past five weeks of what makes a great church great. 22 characteristics. Let me just close by sharing a poem with you by, by Mavis Williams entitled The Perfect Church. He says this, he says, if you should be, if you should find the perfect church without one fault or smear, for goodness sakes, don't join that church. You'd spoil the atmosphere. If you should find the perfect church where all anxieties, all anxieties cease, then pass it by, lest joining it, you'd mar the masterpiece. If you should find the perfect church, then don't you ever dare to tread upon such holy ground because you'd be a misfit there. But since no perfect church exists made by imperfect men, then let's cease looking for that church and love the one we're in. Let me tell you, folks, like the church at Thessalonica, Cornerstone may never be a perfect church, and as long as I'm your preacher, it's not going to be. At least not on this side of eternity. But I think our church, like theirs, is more than capable of being a great church when we practice and we employ all the characteristics of a great church that we've discovered from Paul's words in First Thessalonica. First Thessalonians there. And so I want to encourage you today. I want to encourage you. Just notice there, that, that last verse there, I, I think about that. He says in verse 28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Guys, we are not under the law anymore. We are under grace. And even if we do mess up, we're still under grace. God has blessed us. And God will continue. And I want to encourage you today, if you've never been born again into God's family through the water graves of baptism, you can do that today. On the other hand, maybe you are a born-again believer and, and you've been testing the waters at Cornerstone. You know, I want to invite you to become a part of our family if you would like to do that. That's up to you. Remember this one thing, though. Great churches are only as great as the members who are part of that church. And we can only be as great as you are great. And I believe that God has blessed us. We want you and we need you. Whatever decision you need to make, we give you that opportunity as our band comes this morning. And we're going to close out our time together. And I'm not sure what song we're singing, but I'm sure it's